everybody you just stepped inside of psychotic bump school the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul my name is dj rome and i want to welcome you to another exciting edition of psychotic bump school so ladies and gentlemen tonight oh we have an amazingly full show uh we got a lot going on y'all as we always do uh we got a storm coming up in the the northeast region of the country we got the vaccine rolling out we got uh, an impeachment coming. Oh, we, we, there's always nonstop news happening in our society, but we have some issues to tackle right here on Psychotic Bump School. So check out this lineup. Uh, we have a first time guest coming in. Her name is Ziamara Yannique. This good sister is one of the founders of an amazing online school. Uh, it's actually an educational hybrid model that features both online school as well as homeschooling options. It's called I Learn at the Kitchen Table. And uh, Zia Mata is here to break it all down for us. That's Zia Mata Yannick joining us this evening for the very first time. And also returning, we have California epidemiologist, the good sister, Dr. Flo John Colfer, AKA Dr. Flo. Dr. Flo is back to talk to us about the latest in the progression of coronavirus and its treatment and the vaccine distribution. Dr. Flo has got the goods, y'all. She's gonna be back to break it all down. And we're also paying tribute tonight with our final guest, uh, the good sister, actress, poetess extraordinaire, Gina Loring. She's here to break down the life and times and her experience meeting the great Cicely Tyson. That's right. Cicely Tyson passed away, y'all. Uh, 96 years young. She lived an amazingly full, groundbreaking life full of accomplishments. She was the queen of our hearts. Cicely Tyson, so graceful, so just everything. Oh, it's amazing the transitions that have occurred lately from Hank Aaron to Cicely Tyson, you know, personal losses, you know, my good brother Al Jackson, as well as Double K. We lost him over the weekend. Double K is a MC and beat maker and producer of the great Los Angeles underground syndicate called People Under the Stairs. We lost Double K, y'all. Michael Turner, may he rest in paradise. Oh my God. So many things, y'all. So uh, those are going to be our guests, Gina Loring, Ziamata Yannick, as well as Dr. Flo. So you might want to call your friends and family to the radio or the computer because we are about to set it off. So this is KCWGTheTruth.com. My name is DJ Rome. Welcome to Psychotic Bump School. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back with our first guest, Dr. Flo, after this. Yeah. yeah, strap, bring that hook in. I'm 
myself Innocent like me to hide myself It's not like I like being by myself I wanna see the world but can't decide myself Whether or not to get up off this couch Whether or not to get up out this house I wanna know what it's like to feel real good Is this something you could prescribe, Dr. Feel I mean, he's so happy, she's so free Doctor, what in the world is wrong with me? I just need some reassurance I know my career won't be insurance If you could just be earnest Oops, I meant honest and make this promise If any of this makes sense Let them know I wasn't crazy just to really convince Go! Okay, we are back. KCWG, the truth.com. This program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, as you know, with the onset of the new administration coming in, we have brand new policies kicking into gear. And nevertheless, the pandemic of coronavirus 19 is still with us. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how this will all play out. And to help us understand how things are looking right now, present day, I want to welcome back this wonderfully talented and informed and knowledgeable California epidemiologist. That's epidemiologist. Let me get that on correct. Uh, she's by way of Southern California and Northern California. I believe Northern California. So uh, this consistor has put it down before and her last appearance here was definitely well received. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, our good sister, Dr. Flo John Colfer, aka Dr. Flo. Dr. Flo, are you there? I am. Thank you for the warm welcome. It's good to be back. Good to have you back. Why do I confuse you between Southern and Northern California? You are Northern California all day, right? I am. I'm in Sacramento, um, but I do work for an organization that is statewide. So maybe that's why. <laughs> that's probably why. Yeah. Go ahead. Bail me on out. I know I mangled that introduction, but thank you for your kind words. <laughs> So the world of epidemiology, Dr. Flo, uh, the last time you were here, you sort of gave us a, a precursor uh, to what the science actually is. And so we have been well informed by your last visit here. So since that time, subsequent to that, at that time, the election results hadn't been certified and Biden and Harris had not been sworn in. So I'm wondering, since that time, what has been happening in the world of epidemiology, particularly with the rollout of the vaccine? Can you get us caught up a little bit? Sure. So a lot of what I'm going to get you caught up on is um, pre-Biden-Harris uh, uh, administration because they've only been in office for about a week at this point. Um, so most of what was happening predates them. Uh, so, But right after we spoke, there were, in December, um, there were two FDA meetings where the the vaccines were covered. Um, and in those meetings, the first was the Pfizer and then after that was Moderna. And so as a result of those meetings, they are now under emergency use authorization, which means that they can be given to the broader public beyond just their randomized control trials. And so lots of people have begun getting vaccines. The rollout for that, however, has been slower than what was anticipated in part because of production issues. Um, and then there was a tiered system to be able to try to make sure that anybody who got a vaccine in the first round, because the vaccine requires two doses, that they are prioritized to get the second round. Otherwise, you have a bunch of people with a less effective vaccine coursing because it's only been tested with you getting those two doses in exactly that right timing. So we don't know if it's less effective if you wait longer before you get the second dose. 
Um, so that was a real consideration, right? We got to get enough people yeah. up and we got to make sure we can get them in. We have the capacity and organization to get them in for two visits within this tight three week time frame. Um, mm -hmm. And so that has caused, you know, concerns about the rollout and about who's getting it and about who's who's also refusing it, recognizing in full, and this is the position that I and my organization have taken is we are trying to provide people with factual information, but we're not trying to persuade people because we have to recognize um, that this is under emergency use authorization. And that means it's not a fully approved therapeutic yet, which means that there are things we don't know, but that the benefit of getting it to the population um, based on the data exceeds those risks or those perceived risks, I should say. And so that's why we're doing this. That's what you need to be able to be under that emergency authorization. Um, and so that's a really confusing thing to be if you happen to be in one of the groups where you don't even have clinical trial data yet, right? Pregnant women, right. we know nothing about how this impacts them. Uh, people who are immune compromised, we know nothing about how this impacts them. So we have to hold space for the fact that this thing looks like it is going to, it's 95% effective, which is ma majorly effective um, at preventing this deadly virus that has killed hundreds of thousands of people and harmed way more um, short and long-term effects. Yeah. Based against how much we still don't know because we the, the virus has only been around a year, the vaccine has only been around a couple of months. And so, you know, we're balancing those two things out, right? And that's difficult. And so it, it does make sense to have some messengers there who are just trying to provide you information and not trying to persuade you because there are, there are facts and there is fiction, but in terms of making okay. this decision, we have to honor the fact that it's a big one and there's a lot that goes into it. Okay, so help us with some facts on this because the last time you were here, I think you said that epidemiologists basically work on vaccines year round. So can you give us a little idea about the timeline and how actually new this vaccine is? Um, is it brand new? Did they rush it out? Uh, how assured can people be that this has been well studied, crafted so that it is as safe as possible in its administration? Sure. So yes, um, there are epidemiologists around the world um, and, and immunologists around the world uh, that are working on vaccines all year long. Um, and not just in the production side in terms of making sure that seasonally there's a flu vaccine, but they're also thinking about the development of new vaccines for new viruses. And so what people, because we call it coronavirus, people forget that the actual name of this virus is SARS-CoV-2, which is Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus 2, which means there's a SARS-CoV-1 that has already been studied. It just did not end up being one that was going to make as many people sick as SARS-CoV-2. But they, that means they also have a lot in common, hence why they're named similarly. And so we've learned a lot from that. And of course, the word SARS is going to sound familiar to everyone because we all, because for those of you who were you know old enough to, to remember it, if you have younger listeners, 2003 was when SARS came on the the you know the scene in Southeast Asia. Um, and so we again, we learned from a core component of what this how this virus moves. So for the last 17 now 18 years, that's been studied. Um, so yes, we there is a major rush to be able to come up with something specific to the virus that's just come out. But anytime that happens, there usually are other viruses that we've seen that are similar and we benefit from all that we've already learned about them in the attempt to produce something new. So yes, it's new, 
also it's based on 17 years of research. And so if you think 17 years is rushed, then maybe it's rushed. But I do understand the thinking mm-hmm. because this is a brand new virus, right? Absolutely. Like they used to say in hip hop, don't call it a comeback. Uh, it's mm-hmm. been I've been here years. for years. <laughs> yeah, for real, for real. Uh, you talk about the emergency authorization use. Can you speak to us a little bit more about that, about which communities have been declared uh, eligible or uh, ready for such an emergency authorization? Is it the impacted communities that where we see in Northern California, for example, you mentioned Sacramento, there are some mm-hmm. communities that have been red and purple tier uh, for quite some time. Um, are those the types of communities nationwide that are eligible for this emergency authorization first? So I want to make something clear that when we're talking about the the emergency use authorization, it's not specific to communities. It's an FDA designation for something new. So normally the FDA doesn't allow the general public to get access to a new drug or treatment until it has been fully vetted in clinical trials because you want to make sure it's safe. But there are some times like when we're in a pandemic where you would want to get something out earlier than usual because the benefits far outweigh the new risks, right? So this time last year, we didn't have 400,000 people dead. So it would not have made sense to rush through some vaccine for some virus that's not you know, an imminent threat. Now we're sitting on 400,000 people dead and millions of people who've gotten sick. And so that calculus changes. But then there's, that's separate from how states and counties decide they're going to distribute their vaccine. So that can be a priority tier. And we're seeing that, right? We started with healthcare workers and we started with people over 75. And then because of the data, we decided to drop it down to people over 65. So that's the part, the distribution is is the part that where we certainly should be thinking about communities. But I do want to separate that out from the FDA's designation of the vaccine as being under emergency use. Okay, I appreciate that. And is it fair to say that's a federalized uh, distinction? If it comes from the FDA, that means it's 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 government uh, infused, right? In terms of yes, uh, so the the FDA is a public entity um, where that reviews anything that's going to be put out for distribution to make sure that it is safe enough for human um, consumption. Okay, and so that's that's where that um, emergency use comes from. So they're saying for the nation, mm-hmm. it is this thing is proven to be to be helpful enough that we want to get it to you earlier than we normally would because any potential risks at this point are less important than the benefits you're about to get from having been vaccinated. That's what that that use authorization means. Okay, got it. And what people are hoping for, at least some people, is is that there will be more coordination between federal and local governments. In California, for example, where you and I are, Gavin Newsom uh, just recently rolled back uh, restrictions from the coronavirus. And you were talking a little bit about the data and how uh, in some aspects, we're still learning so much about it. Uh, what do, can you speculate a little bit about what data he might have been referencing to to roll back um, the restrictions to 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 lift s- some of the burdens on these businesses? Uh, I think that means we go back to the tier system if we ever left that. Can you spotlight on that a little bit? What that rollback means and what data he might have been referring to in doing so. Yes, um, you know, this decision is is quite controversial and it's one that, you know, I'm not sure we're in a place, I mean, I want to disagree with with Gavin a bit here, Um, but I think what he's looking at is that we entered this peak in November where we were at risk of running out of our 
um, you know, our emergency room beds, our ICU beds, right? And so that was always one of the primary considerations for how much of the state to shut down, what things to keep closed to try to be able to keep the transmission lower. Like without, you know, without relegating everybody to their homes and telling them they could never leave, we were never going to get the transmission down to zero, but we wanted to have as few people as possible and as much protection as possible. So it wasn't running rampant through the community. And so in November, what ended up happening was as the holidays were approaching and the weather was getting colder, people were spending more time, more time indoors and this virus started spreading a lot faster. And so we thought we had a peak. Remember back in July when we thought we had a peak and then we yeah. saw our cases going down? Yes. Now that peak, you can barely see on a, on a, a graph because the peak looks like just baseline, right? Because of how big the peak in November and December is. It changed the margins of the graph so that now that little peak looks like barely nothing, right? Mm. Um, and so and so all of this is happening, right? And so now we're starting to see those cases fall off because the holidays are over and people are, are I guess, congregating less. And so, so we're starting to see it go down. And so what I think the calculus is, is we're starting to see it go down. We know when we have these more severe shutdowns, they really harm, you know, the economy and put people at risk. So we're going to try to reopen. I think the challenge though, is that there's a way to do that without having to reopen the economy that prioritizes business over people's lives and over the transmission of this virus. And and because we, we actually have the data to show that if we keep these more severe restrictions for just a little bit longer, we get out of this. Um, and if we don't, we don't end up getting out of this. And there's a calculation on how many more people will die, how many more people will get sick and have long-term effects because of it, all of that. So I mean, that's the thing I think we have to consider. And I prioritize people over the businesses because we could always just give people enough relief so they don't have to lose their shirt to be able to keep their life. I mean, I'm getting triggered listening to you right now. I saw a video maybe a week ago or so. I think it was uh, the singer Trey Songs or someone, or no, it was a Bow Wow having this big, massive concert uh, mm-hmm. somewhere across the country, maybe Texas or Georgia, I can't recall. But it, it's, it seems so premature to me, Dr. Flo. I mean, obviously, yes. without being privy to the numbers as you are, this doesn't seem like it's a smart move. As you said, California was the model of for the, for the entire country there for a while, way back in July, when we had, quote unquote, flattened the curve and put those yep. early restrictions in. And we were the talk of the town, and now, um, of course, him shooting himself in the foot, getting caught out there, you know, dining in public without yes. a mask. I mean, that severely hurt his credibility, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm very concerned, Dr. Flo. This feels, I mean, you know, I'm just speaking from emotion now because I can, you know, but data wise, this doesn't feel like it adds up. And I, I'm very concerned that this is a premature move. And so who's speaking I, to I him? Too. You said there's a calculus out there. So is Gavin Newsom? privy to that calculus Who, who's speaking to him about this he he is but i mean i think these are this is the the difference in what you see in the data and what you decide to do with it right is that interpretation so he's being presented with the data and he's making oh a, a decision that the weight on the economy as it's currently set up is a bigger risk than the number of people who will die. I mean, that's essentially what we're deciding. We're trading lives for the economy, right? Um, I don't make that same decision because I value them differently. 
Uh, and because I think that there are other ways of being able to, the, my only concern about the economy is how it impacts the people. So if that's my primary concern, I think there's a way to attend to the economy that doesn't threaten the people. But so if what, that's not what, your calculus, if you- that? Yeah, that, that's oh, it, what a caring, empathic person would say, right? So how would that, what would that look like, Dr. Flo? That would look like when we first shut down in March, giving everybody enough money so that we mm. could, so that they could pay their housing um, and, you know, food and all of those things so that people weren't trying to decide, do I not, do I want to protect myself from this deadly virus or do I want to continue to not be experienced, not like to keep my home and to continue to eat, right? Mm. Like that's not a decision somebody should have to make. You shouldn't have to decide, right. am I going to, to essentially live or, you know, li live, you know, comfortably and have my needs met or not have my basic needs met. That's never a decision anybody should have to make. So if we had secured those things back when this started, A, we could have kept the transmission rate low for enough time for potentially a vaccine to be delivered at the end of the year. We're talking about just slowing things down for a year and making everybody comfortable for that period of time so that we don't lose 400,000 people and make millions of people sick and potentially have lifelong impact. That's right. That's right. So that's the calculus. And it's saying how much money can we get? How many uh, can we stop the, you know, trade of, of you know, in, in banking and in stock? Can we stop a little bit of that back and forth so that we can just for one moment secure people in time? I mean, we talked about wiping out rents, mortgages, like really, really try to make it so the only people who are, who are leaving their houses are the people who are, would be delivering groceries to everybody because mm -hmm. we're all housed and we're all, um, you know, we're all taken care of there and we're not leaving our, our homes to interact with other people to even go grocery shopping because we have made it possible for that to be a thing that we can get to everybody safely. God. And just that being it, right? Think about how many more people could be alive right now. Oh my so, God. And it's not that, I mean, we spent so much money trying not to do that, but, but to their credit, uh, and I mean credit just kind of sarcastically, a lot mm -hmm. of people made a ton of money on that, right? But mm -hmm. I'm just saying, like, that's the challenge, I think, is people made money on that, right? And we spent tons of money trying to, to protect people from it, but people are suffering. Mm -hmm. And we could have, for a cheaper amount, just done away with all that drama and saved ourselves people too. Wow. I'm gonna have a education expert on uh, this episode as well, but just speaking about schools and what you're saying right now, uh, can you speak to us a little bit before you go about what the data shows currently about the, the, the safety and uh, what can go into the decision-making about whether we or not we open schools sooner before later? Um, we know a little bit more at this time compared to months ago. So what can you tell us about the uh, fate of this virus as it relates to students in school? Um, schools can be super spreader events. Um, and, and again, going back to how much we don't know about this virus, we don't know what the long-term impact of having the virus can be on kids. And then there's also the worker protection you know, issue for our teachers um, who are not children and who would be part of those events and who would you know, be, ex be experiencing all the ramifications of it. So yeah, the data right now don't show that it is safe at this moment to reopen the schools and mass in the way we were doing things before. But I think this brings up two important issues. Um, and I'm sure you'll probably get into this with the person who's doing education. One, we've been talking about schools without walls for decades. 
does this force us to reimagine what education looks like beyond just trying to replace the walls at school with the walls at home? Like, what does it look like to be able to really transform a curriculum so that students are moving around and out, especially in their younger years? So I think it, I think, I think this opens up an opportunity to be able to think about how do we balance the, the mental health and the developmental needs of kids with their physical health. But I don't think the data right now are showing us we should be just opening up schools as we did them before and putting everyone at risk. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where we, where we are on that. I mean, it's just common sense. I mean, I realize that we don't all have sense in common, but that's just middle of the road, just basic logic that everyone should, you know, abide by. I mean, I understand that the data says what it says and that it's subject to people's interpretation. Heck, they're justifying people storming the Capitol on certain right. sides of these issues. And so I, I, I just don't know what to say. I just wish more people uh, we, we just do the right thing because it's hard to listen to you, Dr. Flo, and not think about those 400,000 people that you spoke about. You know, yep. some of those are people that we love. You know, yes. I lost somebody recently, you know, mm -hmm. and you've lost people around you. Yes. I'm sure. I mean, I'm yes. sure of it, you know? So, I mean, just from a scientific standpoint, we can speak about it. From a mental health standpoint, we can speak about it. From an educational right. standpoint, we can speak about it. But um, do you want to riff a little bit about the, the personal? I mean, you don't have to get super personal, but I'm just curious. I mean, we have lives and this is not mm -hmm. a joke. I mean, yeah. people are dying from this and it's because of the, you know, budgets and, you know, they, they indicate our priorities. And as you said, if we're willing to trade lives uh, for this virus, I, I, I just don't, well, I, I know that that's just not the way to go. It's not healthy. Dr. Flo, can you riff a little bit before we go, just the personal impact that this has yeah. on epidemiologists? Uh, speak to us about that a little bit, please. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to talk about this publicly, but over the Christmas break, I had taken a few weeks off and um, started the break um, reading through the Pfizer and Moderna documents because they were coming out right as I was going on on downtime. And then I get a, a notification from my cousins that my uncle has contracted um, COVID and is in the hospital. Mm. And so I now go into, you know, manager and um, communicator for the family of what's going on. So mm -hmm. with the time zone difference, because my family's on the East Coast, this means I'm up at three o'clock in the morning having conversations with physicians when they're doing rounds um, on, mm -hmm. on certain days, you know, and I am, you know, trying to relay information back. And my uncle is very insistent that he's not making any major decisions until they run them through me. That's right. Which which, you know, then, then, right. There's this added pressure. Like this is, right. these are, you know, I always try to depersonalize data and I always try to give the best of what I would give if it were, um, you know, for my family, but mm -hmm. there's also a reason why, you know, in medicine and in lots of other professions, you're not supposed to represent or do your profession with family because mm -hmm. you're, you, your ability to be clear-minded about it at times is, yes. is different because you have, you are, you're so personally invested that you start throwing out things that you know, don't make sense. Right. Hmm. Um, and so there is a way where I was, you know, I said to my, my husband, I, I was like, you know, please don't let me accidentally kill my uncle. Hmm. Um, and 
I meant that because as you're reading through what we know, right, which is the, okay, I'm putting on my logical brain now. This is, right. uh, you know, a, a, a patient who's experiencing this. Okay, I need to go to, what do we know? What are the options? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the options are, this is under, like we talked about, emergency use authorization. Mm-hmm. And the, the recommended way of doing this is, maybe start with one dose and then make your judgment. Like that's the kind of thing there, or, or this has been proven to neither um, be harmful with, for people with COVID-19 nor to be, but nor has it been proven to be helpful for people with COVID-19. Like that's the level of recommendation that you're getting. You're not getting administer this therapeutic at this time and this dosage, um, mm-hmm. you know, for this many days. And you should expect to see this, this, and this the way that you normally would with something that had been fully approved. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it would go through a clinical trial. And I bring that up because so many people are worried about the the vaccine and how fast it was developed and what do we know about it and blah, blah, blah. blah. And I get that. Mm-hmm. But please know that there has been no clinical trial for a lot of the therapeutics we're using once you already have COVID. So mm-hmm. there, you're not getting the benefit of 40,000 people having been in a clinical trial for you to be able to test something out. You're getting this sort of worked on eight patients in Boston last week. Mm. Wow. Good luck. Good luck. Here's what we did. And we were guessing good luck. Mm. <sighs> they call her Dr. Flo, y'all. Epidemiologist out of California. Dr. Flo, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what's the best way for people to follow you, follow the work of uh, epidemiologists such as yourself and keep track of the latest developments of coronavirus? You can find me um, on Twitter at FloJohn, F-L-O-J-A-U-N-E. Same thing on Facebook and also on LinkedIn. I'm feeling free. Let's go. This is Angel on Sax, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWG, thetruth.com, best internet radio on the planet. Back in the day when the bus was less than three quarters, Lloyd met Beverly and took her out to Sweet Waters. Boy, what a looker, he thought, let me quarter. He must have been a player, because she popped out three daughters. Brenda, the oldest by herself for a little while. That's till Joanne showed up, she was the middle child. Then came Loretta next, she was a little wild. Beverly was fly, so her daughters had a little style. Brenda, the first in the family to go to college, with dreams of being properly addressed as doctor. Insert the name of the man who's gonna sweep her off her feet, then a heartbeat sharpen their shark's teeth. Just because a brother say he love you don't make a so, so when she was looking for suitors, she had to take it slow Someone to run figures through an Angela Davis fro And dedicate herself to like songs on the radio The ratio of black men to black woman at this college is preposterous If you a scholar, you already know So she decided she should focus on her studies She couldn't have boyfriends, she could have buddies When she get out on her own, she could bring men home But there was one in particular breaking out the friend zone It's deja vu, the way this came to me And it explained how it came to be I'm from this It was hard for black actors. They had to 
light in their skin will make up a max factor My grandfather Stan wasn't nothing but a man He fell in love with Javoti so he took her by the hand They had two sons, Stanley and Perry They go together like Brandy and Sherry or Coke and Mary and Barry Simply put, they don't always get along They used to travel as a family doing shows, singing songs But this was through the segregated South And before someone got punched and they segregated them out Perry was out, living like a hippie in the 60s Pops chilling, headed to the village to see Bob Dylan When he was top billing, but Perry was not feeling complete He had to get on his feet, he said God willing I could get into this school That's smarter for real, plus I got this draft card in the mail The champ said, I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong Mama leaning on caskets, they shooting black faggots and Catholics People bleeding on TV is so tragic Creating a catalyst for the people to get active He got into NYU and took classes The world was changing, he knew he couldn't look past this Who knew going to school would make him want to give his name to a girl And have children that would change the world This had be KCWG, thetruth.com. The name of this program is Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, the discussion about reopening schools has become a very, very hot button issue across our politics, across our education system. And it's always fascinating to have people in the field of education speaking to these issues on the show. However, we've done you one better, ladies and gentlemen. We have somebody that actually has our own school that is a nationwide alternative to brick and mortar schools. Uh, she's actually the CEO of this amazing company called I Learn at the Kitchen Table, along with her uh, fellow co-founders who will join us at another time for this uh, show. But uh, she spent many years as an actress in Southern California, where we actually met. Uh, she since that time returned to the East Coast. She's owner of a school in Panama City, and she's a lifelong learner herself. And I cannot wait to hear all about I Learn at the Kitchen Table from my dear friend from way back in the day, y'all. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome for the very first time to Psychotic Bump School, our good sister, Ziamara Yannick. Ziamara, are you there? I am. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for um, inviting me to participate in this. Wow. It, I am it, grateful. How are you? Oh, it's been a long time. I'm doing okay. We're, we're resolute, Ziamata. I mean, it's been a long time. I mean, you and I were reflecting off the air how long it's been since we've actually spoken and how long ago we met. Life has changed so much since that time in the early 2000s or before, right? <laughs> I know. It, I, you know what? When we were talking, I was remembering um, Will Smith playing Ali. That was the year we met because I remember... Wow. Yes. And I'm just like, wow, how long wow. ago? I can't even remember how far back, but yes. That's a ways back. And for you, that was like several zip codes and state boundary lines ago. I mean, that was a while ago. And now you currently find yourself in the beautiful state of Georgia in Atlanta. Am I right? Yes. You know, um, Georgia, that is now blue. We flipped Come the on. state. I'm really excited. Sorry, I had to get that in there. Get but that yes, in there. I, and um, I returned back to Atlanta. I went to college. I went to Clark Atlanta University. So Atlanta is not strange for me. So, but it feels mm. good to be back. Wow. Y'all are a part of history, Ziamata. I mean, in more ways than one, not only is Georgia now blue, like you said, but y'all flipped the Senate. You have an HBCU graduate in the White House and Kamala yeah. Harris. Well, I tell you what else is exciting to see is uh, you've embarked upon this. And this isn't new for you, Ziamata. I mean, you are 
lifelong dedicated to uh, the issue of educating children. Uh, you have a school back in Panama called Escuela San Cristobal. Uh, here in the States though, which is again nationwide, you have this company called I Learn at the Kitchen Table. Can you talk to us a little bit about I Learn at the Kitchen Table? How did this come to be? Okay, well, this really came to be, I like to tell people, it was just that um, there was um, a group of us that got together that actually was initiated by Chaka Zulu. And we started talking about just different initiatives going on around COVID and the quarantine and about what we can do for change. And I happened to take part in the education committee and then just listening to everybody, what teachers were going through, parents were going through. I was just like, I need to be able to do something. So I jokingly called um, my friend who's been my friend since fifth grade and said, hey, you know, this is gonna be like the return of the governess. And she was just like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, that profession that died out where, you know, women went and taught children, not nannies, it, all they cared about was their education and making sure that they reached their next level. And she was just like, yeah, you might have a point. And mm -hmm. then from there, we were just having conversations. And I said, you know, I think this could be a business. And then just through many conversations, we decided like, yes, this is a vital business. We, we sent out a survey to parents. We sent out a survey to teachers just to kind of get a pulse on where everybody felt and how they were thinking and all of the issues that they were having. And we realized that we could be that hybrid. We can help augment, you know, the children's virtual learning by providing a platform. I learn at the kitchen table. Mm. So, yeah, go ahead. So basically what we've done is we've created um, three major um, positions. Mm -hmm. One is that a classroom attendant. So we're all working, we're all, I mean, executives, even not exec executives, essential workers. We did not sign up to teach our children at home. So mm -hmm. what happened, so we're already at some kind of deficit. So what we did was we provided a position called a classroom attendant where that person will go to the individual's home. And this way, if you are at home, like let's say if you're at home with your children, but you're doing this, you're taping, right? You're working, your wife is working. You can't necessarily sit and make sure that your child is on Zoom. You can't necessarily make sure if are they uploading their homework or their assignments on time because you're also trying to get your job done. In addition to that, even if you set them up, as we all know, a lot of these platforms have glitches. You know, Zoom may go out or this or that. A lot of um, teachers have said, they're like, oh, we're having computer issues. The child goes offline, they never get back online. Nobody's there to really see if they're really back online. Mm. So what happens is just that the classroom attendant will be there to make sure that they are present, make sure that they are comprehending, to make sure that they are um, submitting their work, doing their homework. So they're basically the teacher's aid for that, for that teacher who's teaching the children virtually. And mm. this way, it, it's an ease for the parents and the families because now they don't have to try to split and do two jobs or three jobs and trying to make sure everybody's on par. Then there are some parents, because some schools are opening up, 
And there's a lot of parents who are just like, I'm not comfortable with my child going back into the school system. And some of the schools are saying, no, we're open. Your children have to come back in. And there are a lot, and there are those parents who are just like, I get that the schools are opening, but I'm not sending my child back to school. You know, it's my comfort level and we have to be able to respect that. So mm -hmm. with that, then we have what we call um, homeschool. So when people think of homeschool, they, again, it's like for the parent or the individual, I have no idea how to begin or how do I go about doing this? You come to us, we will provide you with a homeschool teacher who will have an accredited curriculum for your state, your county. So that way, if you do decide later on to transition your child back into a brick and mortar school, they will make that transition with ease and they would not have lost anything because they would have been right up to par. And then also, we also provide what we call educational gurus, which is also known as tutors. And mm -hmm. that can be done in person and virtually. And then there's some people who are saying, you know what, I really like your service, but I can't afford it. I don't know how I'm gonna be able to do that. That's fine. Because what we say is then let's talk about an educational pod where we will provide one individual and we can go up to six children provided that the home has ample spacing and meets all of the CDC requirements. And then this way now you can still enjoy in the resource by sharing the cost. Oh, wow. Well, uh, that sounds amazing. Uh, you just taking me in into an entirely different direction. Uh, what were some of the hurdles that got in the way of you founding this school? Were, were there any legal entanglements or uh, certain permits that you needed to do? I mean, we're not talking brick and mortar here, but were there any particular challenges that threatened to hamstring this entire idea? No, no, not necessarily. I can't say there was any, um, any legal. Um, what we have done is we have done our due diligence with everything. Mm. All of our educators are completely vetted. We do background checks on everyone. We mm. have insurance. So any individual that goes into um, someone's home, if anything should happen, we are covered with general liability, cyber insurance. We have all of our insurances across the board. That's fantastic. And when it comes to homeschool, I mean, it's a viable idea uh, during normal times, uh, Ziamata, because the level of, I don't know, sort of disenfranchisement that some students experience from being on campus and experiencing bullying or experiencing difficulties with learning in general. Um, in what way would you say I learned at the kitchen table could benefit someone who is considered an exceptional learner who might have a learning disability or experience learning challenges or even behavioral challenges. Can you speak to us about that a little bit? Yeah, so what is great? So if someone chooses um, to do homeschool, right? What happens is just that we have Dr. Covington, who's our chief academic officer, who will work specifically with our homeschool teacher. So the teacher will not be necessarily in the classroom or at the table by themselves. They will have a support system. Mm -hmm. With that, what happens is just that we're able to really, one of the challenges a lot of teachers have, let me back up, one of the, a lot of the 
challenges teachers have in the classrooms are that it's 26, 30 students, right? So mm -hmm. if you have one or two children that have special needs, as you, as you stated, it's kind, sometimes it's difficult when you have to teach the masses. Now, if we take away the masses and where the teacher is really truly able to just teach, mm -hmm. then what happens is that's that that child gets so much more because now the curriculum, the concentration, their learning curve, we're able to figure that out. And we're mm -hmm. able to work with that specific student to help them grow. Nice. And then in addition to that, we also do, and this, I don't, I don't want to sound so, I guess, um, I don't know, I, I don't know how to phrase it, but basically what we do is that we are, Chief Academic Officer has Classroom Works, which is an educational platform which we have every student take when they come on board, whether they're being tutored, classroom attendant, going to their own regular school, or if they're choosing homeschool. So this way we can see where they are and that way we can help them grow. So then this way we can do actual assessments and help and really focus in. Not every child learns the same, right? So we need to figure out how does that child learn? Because one thing we do know is that everyone can learn. It doesn't matter where you are, you can learn. It's just figuring out your style of learning and being able to zone in on that. So that way we can help that individual grow. Oh, that is perfect. So you spoke a little bit about uh, the fact that we're on Zoom education. And um, can you talk to us a little bit about what are your ideas about student engagement and participation? Because, you know, in some communities across the country during this pandemic, um, access has been an issue. Disproportionality has been an issue. Um, I notice in some of the more uh, affluent communities, uh, I see classrooms and a lot of those students have their cameras on. Of course, it, it varies uh, county by county, district, district by district. But can you think of a few ways in which uh, I Learn at the Kitchen Table inspires participation and student engagement so that they're not just logged in, but they're actually dialed in, participating and interacting with their teachers and fellow classmates? Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yes, I can. So that is a great example of why having a classroom attendant is important. Because mm. when you have a classroom attendant, again, that individual is truly the teacher's aid to the teacher who's teaching on the virtual platform. Okay, it's basically an extension. So with the classroom attendant there, they're able to help that child to, um, to make sure that they're comfortable, to make sure that their camera is on, to make sure that they understand so that way they feel comfortable participating. The classroom attendant can then let the parents know, say, say Mr. Smith, I would like to, I think you need to be able to talk to the teacher because I think that Johnny's having issues with this. Maybe can you please have the teacher go over that again? So what happens is just that a lot of times in our communities, we're all working. So what we do is we set the computer up and we walk away because we have to work as well. By having the classroom attendant there, they're able to make sure that the child is being engaged and is engaging as well. Oh yes, so important. Um, that That's critical because there are students who are feared to 
we're, there, there's a sense that we're losing uh, not only students, but a full year of uh, learning, you know, due to this pandemic. And you're talking about, you, you offer more than one particular educational model. We're, we're talking about online, but you're offering homeschooling. So the, the thought that comes to mind for me is that eventually we're gonna come up out of this pandemic and there's still gonna be a need for I learn at the kitchen table, am I right? Because you're not just talking solely and exclusively about an online instructional model, am I correct? I am correct. I am correct. And the, the whole goal here is to support. First of all, education will never be the same. It will never mm -hmm. look the same after this pandemic. So let's, wow. be, let's be clear on that. Wow. Okay? What makes you say that? Yeah. What makes because, you say that? Because what happened is that homeschool was already starting to grow. Mm. For all different reasons, parents were pulling their children out of brick and mortar schools. Yes. Okay. The violence that has been going on, you mm. know, the terrorism, all of that, all for different reasons, they have already started pulling their kids out of schools. Mm. I've had friends who have said, it's cheaper for me to stay home and have my husband work and we do homeschool. So that way I know they get, they're getting a valid education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. So... The thing about it is just that I think what happened with the pandemic, it just kind of accelerated the process and the movement of how education is going to be. How we knew it growing up, it will never go back to that. And it's something as simple as I was talking to my cousin this morning because you know there's gonna be a big snowstorm in like the DC, um, New York area going up the East Coast. And she was just like, you know, these millennials were like, well, are we going to have a snow day on Monday? And she was just like, they will never know what a snow day is because we work from home. Why do we wow. need snow days now? Wow. Wow. Something as simple as that. Yep. Yep. And that's huge because the, those conventions are no longer going to be necessary. So, and, and given, I mean, I'm so glad you said, I mean, this is nothing new in that sense in terms of homeschooling and because of all the issues that you spoke about. So given that uh, for someone who is searching for something such as I learn at the kitchen table, uh, how do you help parents overcome the skepticism of sort of what they perceive to be a new venture? How do you uh, sort of not indoctrinate, but how do you educate them about what you're offering uh, in brick and mortar days, of course, Parents would literally visit the campus, do a walkthrough, go to the main office, talk to the office manager in the front. And if they so felt inclined, they would fill out some paperwork and enroll their child. Uh, what would be the process for a parent considering enrolling her child into I Learn at the Kitchen Table? Okay, great. So I think that's actually a great, great question. So we do use technology. And one of the things is just that with all of our parents, and I know a lot of times people are even kind of confused, like exactly what is it that you do? How can you help us? The best way I say is that we are here to support parents. We're here to help augment with their children's or their child's learning at home. So one of the things that we do is just that we have an application that we have each parent fill out for their child. So that way we can get a little background about the child and then we set up a video meeting so that way you get to see us, you get to meet us, right? We can't necessarily do it in person. So we do it virtually because we do try to minimize as much 
in touch until we actually need it. We save that for them actually go for that person going into the child's home. Mm. So during that process, we listen. We hear what the parent, what challenges they're having. Mm. And then we suggest what we think will be best or how we can best support. And we also know that we may not be the best fit for, for everyone either, because okay. I think we had one individual, she was really looking for a nanny and somehow she really wanted to work with us, but really at the end of the day, what she wanted was a nanny. And we had to tell her that as excited as we are about working with her, our, our, core is found is education. It's about making sure that the child um, get, of course, you know, arithmetic, reading, mm -hmm. science, the basic, the core, in addition to that, the emotional social aspects of it, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's also another thing too, that we know that's going to come out of this pandemic. There's going to be a lot of um, psychological issues because a lot of people have been withdrawn, have been taken away from community. We're meant to touch, you know, be together, commune. So there's a lot of other things. So one of the things to go back to your question is that we really try to hear what it is the parent is looking for, what bridge is it that they need? And then we recommend what we feel is best according to that. And again, yes. And even if we may not be that for them, it is still our goal to make sure that we give them the resources that they need. So that way they can help their child or children. Oh, that's beautiful. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. We're speaking with Ziamara Yannick. Ziamara Yannick. She's the founder of I Learn at the Kitchen Table. It is a homeschool and online um, multifaceted hybrid educational experience that is available across the country right now. And so uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, before you go, uh, the age ranges that you target for I Learn at the Kitchen Table, do you start at preschool? Do you go up to age 18 until they're a senior in high school? Uh, what's we, the rest of the students that right, we do, that's a really good question. We do K through eight. Okay. Um, but the best thing to say is just that most of the time, if we do K through eight, and however, with our high school students, it's usually mostly with tutoring, our, using our educational gurus, but we do cover K through 12. Okay, fantastic. And just so, because we, you know, of course during brick and mortar days, you're dealing with classroom disruptions and disciplinary issues and yard time spats and disagreements and what have you, you know how it is when we were younger. Uh, in what ways does uh, I learned at the kitchen table had to manage or mitigate any discipline issues that might emerge with students. Uh, does that even exist in this world of I learned at the kitchen table? What's been your experience with that so far? Well, you know what? First, issues are going to happen, period, right? So let's just be clear on that. So now maybe the thing about, well, I don't like this student, that's, or the two students fighting, like you said, the playground fight, or I'm going to get to after school, we probably won't necessarily have that. But yeah. if we have an educational pod, there's still going to be some kind of, you know, children are children at the end of the day. And regardless 
of how you may look at it, that is still positive because you grow from those different experiences. That's you know, right. you grow from that fight that you have in the playground. You learn how to deal with conflict. You learn how maybe I don't need to use my hands. Maybe I need to use my words. So mm. nothing is, I always feel that every experience is a positive experience and is a learning experience. Absolutely. Well, before I let you go, uh, you spoke a little bit about the, just the emotional benefits of being with I Learn at the Kitchen Table, and I know you have a social worker on your staff. And so can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Because I'm really fascinated with that piece of it. In what ways is I Learn at the Kitchen Table a safer model, a more nurturing model, a supportive model for those who may be experiencing emotional challenges to where they might you know, require at some point, possibly some uh, social emotional counseling services. What are your thoughts on that? So what happens is just that by having I Learn at the Kitchen Table, especially if you're doing an educational pod, the children are not by themselves. And especially for those who um, are only children, they get to be able to mingle with other children, which, which encourages, you know, that team commodity that the children need to have. So what happens is just that, so that's what happens by having the classroom attendant, again, the child is not just sitting in front of the computer or the siblings are just sitting in front of the computer, then they go from that, then going to do something else. Having the classroom attendant will assist them in encouraging them to do other activities like arts and crafts or going outside to to play, to do some kind of PE exercise. So all the kind of things that you're not necessarily able to get doing on the virtual computer because as great as being able to connect with zoom and microsoft teams and all and google classrooms and all of the other virtual platforms at the end of the day you still need to have some kind of physical activity and some kind of um hand touch so that's what happens and that's what helps because the child now they actually get to physically connect with somebody yes so important um what are the distinctions for I Learn at the Kitchen Table? Uh, are you considered a public school, a charter school, a private school? Uh, what brand? No, actually, we're just considered an educational support service. So we mm-hmm. we help support families. We help augment families by providing educational um, gurus, classroom attendants, or homeschool teachers. Fantastic. And let's say a teacher was searching on EdJoin, for example. Uh, how do you go about recruiting teachers? Uh, if someone wanted to join your staff or be considered for a position, uh, do you have any particular needs that you're searching for right now? Um, and if so, uh, how would we be able to help you get the word out about that? Okay, that is great. Well, we do put positions out. They will go. They go out on our website. I know that we're currently going to be looking for an educational guru in the Raleigh Durham area. I, that um, position just came about on Friday, nice. so I know that we're going to be looking for that. And we update our website under careers, so that way, if you are interested in joining our team, you can look there. We also, I'm also going to, I also have a January special where we were offering 50% off if you paid in full. And I am willing to extend that offer if they mention that they heard this podcast. Oh, there we go. All right. Tell them you heard it right here on Psychotic Bump School, y'all. 
Well, I can't thank you enough for being here. You're welcome to come back anytime you like. And even next time, I'll bring some of your wonderful colleagues with you. Tell us once again, what's the best way for people to find your website and find your school? Okay, so we are on Instagram. It's I Learn at the Kitchen Table. And our website is www.ilearnatthekitchentable.com and you can go ahead and submit any information or you can go ahead and also send us an email and you can reach us at info at ilearnatthekitchentable.com People who are born with a special talent don't really know that they have a special talent. And I believe the reason is because you come here with it. You've never known yourself any other way. Right. It's, it's people who make you recognize that God has given you a special gift and it's here to serve humanity. This is Gina Loring and you're listening to DJ Rome on Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. Okay, we are back. KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, we're at the part of the show where we're paying tribute to the late and great iconic actress, Cicely Tyson. Yes, y'all, she uh, made her transition a few days ago, 96 years young, an amazing figure in the world of cinema and particularly so to the black community. Uh, she was our all in all and um, she's an ancestor now. And uh, I have a guest on the line that's here to help us pay a little respects to this wonderful, wonderful icon. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back actress, poetess, welcome her back to Psychotic Bump School, our good sister, Gina Loring. Miss Loring, are you there? Hey, I am here. How you doing? Oh, we are cool in the gang. We are resolute. Gina Loring, how in the world is it going for you? 
You know, all things considered, I'm doing well. Can't can't complain. I know things are definitely moving in a interesting direction these days. Um, yes. But but really considering, good. I'm 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 well. I have my health. I have my community. So all is well. Yeah. Thank you for reminding us of that because during these times when it seems like it's just like a domino effect, like one after the other, and every uh, sort of hurdle is predicated upon the preceding one it seems like it's non-stop sometimes but being able to stop and smell the flowers like you're just reminding us by you know focusing on what you do have your community your health which is important i mean come on um it, mm -hmm. it's something uh to to you know we, we have to acknowledge the importance of that during these times absolutely well um uh, cicely tyson is now an ancestor gina lauren um what can i say i mean she has graced the, the stages of our lives for so many decades now, and um, she's gone on to be with the ancestors, Gina Loring. What are your thoughts about the life <laughs> and times of the great Cicely Tyson, Miss Gina Loring? Well, Cicely Tyson, let me let me start by saying by no means am, am I a, a connoisseur. You know, I, I didn't know her well, um, but right. I, I did get I did get the opportunity to meet her um, and she did leave an impression for sure. I would say first and foremost that you know, as you as you said, she's an ancestor now, but but really she kind of gifted us with just in the last few years in particular, you know, she just uh, released a memoir um, and just in, in looking at some footage of some interview footage of her recently, she she gave us so much wisdom and so much uh, grace with the just just with the example of the kind of presence that she had in her life. Mm. Um, almost almost I would almost say that, you know, she she's a, she's officially an ancestor now, but she kind of was almost like an ancestor in 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 the flesh um, in, in the sense that she embodied a certain uh, regality and dignity yes. and a reminder of, of who we truly are um, as as black people. You know, I think that she really embodied um, that integrity, that dignity, that authenticity mm. um, that that we may have lost a little bit along the way in terms of how we're how we're portrayed publicly. And she mm. kind of brought balance to that. Sure um, did. With the kind of the kind of grace and 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 uh, integrity that she had. Mm. So I met her. I met her uh, several years ago. Uh, she was good friends with my cousin Paul Winfield, um, okay. who was uh, like an uncle to me. Mm -hmm. And when cousin Paul passed, uh, she spoke at his memorial, and she was very present, you know, during that time. And I was really moved by how much she loved him, how their friendship over the years had clearly uh, been really impactful for her. You know, they, of course, worked together on Sounder, mm. um, where they were both nominated for an Oscar. Mm. Um, and then they worked together in the Dr. King miniseries uh, that was on TV in the, I guess it was like late 70s, early 80s. Oh, that's right. Um, yes. And I think they worked together on a couple other projects. So they had a very kind of a longstanding, you know, friendship and connection. Mm. And uh, she shared that when she heard the news of his passing, that it was like time, time just stopped, mm. you know, and she just had to sit down. And it kind of was like, you know, one of those moments where your world has now changed forever. Yes. Um, and when she shared that, it just really touched me because I, I, I know that feeling, you know, mm. um, and really got, just got a sense of how, how, how close they were and, um, when I think of her, I, I think of just a, a genuine, kind heart. Um, 
she comes across as so authentic. You know, she's not trying to be like a queen. She just was. Come on. You know, she's not. She wasn't trying to be classy or dignified or mm-hmm. loving. She just was. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's just who she was. At least that's the impression that that I got. Yeah. So that's that's what I would say about about Miss Tyson. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the word grace at least two or three times. We also pay tribute to the late great Nancy Wilson probably about a year and a half, maybe two years ago now when she passed away. And one of the recurring themes during that discussion, Gina Loring, was the fact that she was so regal in her Mm -hmm. essence and it was effortless. And I had joked during that show, it's like, how many women do you know named Nancy uh, didn't embody grace? I mean, from Nancy Reagan to Nancy Wilson, I mean, there's just something about the name Nancy, but we're we're honoring Cicely this time. I'm it's sorry. really the same thing, though. I mean, I, I like mean, I like the sentiment of what you're saying, but I wouldn't compare those two women at, at oh, all. But oh, absolutely, but I, yeah. <laughs> but, but but that same sentiment, though, it's like Cicely was so graceful, and she was yes. so dignified, and she made. Well, you you talk to me. I mean, what what do you think she represented for Black women? You know, particularly during a time where the roles that Black women were getting on the big screen were sort of limited, and what are your thoughts about how she was able to break new ground for her sisters and set a new standard for how we're depicted on screen? You know, I saw an interview. So Gail King interviewed her recently, I think only just like a week ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that Ms. Tyson said is that she made a conscious decision to use her career as a platform mm-hmm. and, and to use it as a tool because essentially, you know, image our images are exported all over the planet, all over the world. Um, the, the, the TV projects and films that the United States puts out, that's what they're showing in other countries. Mm. Um, so it really is a large responsibility when you think of it that way, in terms of the images that you're choosing to portray. Um, and if you look at her body of work, I can't think of a single role where she didn't have some kind of, of integrity and dignity in that in that role. I can't think of something where, where I feel like she maybe compromised herself. Mm-hmm. So it's very clear that she was intentional about how she chose to portray herself. Yes. Um, and, and so that's what I would say about that. I mean, for yeah. me, I'm, you know, I'm an artist, I'm more of a, of a poet and vocalist and activist than, a, than an actress, but, um, but in terms of the role model that she set, for for black women for artists um really is like don't settle you know you don't have to compromise yourself you Mm -hmm. can you can be proud of all of the projects that you choose to be a part of and -hmm. i think she really she really set that uh precedent for sure you know i like i said i can't think of anything that i think she probably wasn't proud of yeah absolutely i mean a couple of more of her recent films come to mind i'll talk to you about that in just a second but you mentioned activism and the fact that that's who you are as well. Uh, what can you tell us about in what ways that inspired you? Because uh, coming out of her generation with, um, you know, we were talking about your cousin Paul, but what about Paul Robeson who sort of threaded that needle between art and um, activism and being, you know, highly politically engaged, if not nothing else, just quite astute in their engagement with the, uh, the issues that pertain to the black community. Uh, what do you feel like she did for you in terms of just, you know, being able to see that it was possible to, to do both, to sort of have that hybrid approach to life in general, to where you could sometimes fuse your art with your activism. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Well, I think it really does have to do with 
tuning in uh, to your, your own moral compass, your own values, your own heart, your own spirit, and remembering who you truly are and why you are here. Why did God put you on the planet at this particular time in this particular incarnation? Why are you here? And if you're in tune with that and you allow that to be your, your North star, you know, your guiding mm-hmm. light, um, then I think that will propel you in the right directions. Um, as far as the projects that you do, the people who you attract, you know, who, how you spend your time. Um, because one of the things that I always think about when people do make their transitions, is just a reminder that, you know, all of our days are limited, you know, not to be, you mm-hmm. know, looking at things from, from a, a negative standpoint, but everybody right. is here for a select amount of time. And yes, so are. how are we using that time? You know, and you, you, you mentioned Mr. Robeson, I mean, that Paul Robeson was the was a prime example of someone who led with his deepest conviction of what he truly believed, mm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and really sacrificed his career in many ways, arguably sacrificed his life and his freedom um, mm-hmm. for for his beliefs and for what he what he stood for politically. Um, and I think that, you know, Miss Tyson, as I said, really, really chose roles that she felt like she could stand behind. She chose projects that told a story that she felt was worth telling. She played characters that exemplified uh, women, black women as dignified, as, as intelligent, as articulate, as, as kind, as strong. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think really we get to choose, you know, what we do and what standard we set for ourselves you know how they say people treat you the way you allow them to treat you and i think that's true true in our careers too people gonna you know give people people that at a certain point i'm sure they weren't gonna offer her certain roles because they knew she wouldn't take it Mm, mm -hmm. you know so it's kind of Mm -hmm. about like you set a standard for yourself you know and and in a way that is a form of activism okay okay sure is now what about um because i'm trying to envision what it must have been like to see her speak at uh, your cousin's memorial, because the way she would hold court on the screen, I mean, she would really be center stage, even if she was not the the main star of the film. I'm thinking about just that one moment in like uh, when she was in Tyler Perry's film, uh, mm-hmm. Diary of a Mad Black Woman. And that, that truly just felt like uh, a moment, you know, that mm-hmm. she was just speaking to everybody in the black community about coming together. And the importance of that, and of course, she's up there with the the beautiful aunties from Maya Angelou to, I mean, I, I can't think of all the the queens that she was up there with, but it was a moment. Um, what is it about? Hmm, I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to ask you because just just being able to hold court like that with such self assuredness, and as you said, with the, the the courage of your convictions that yeah, I can set some limits. Yeah, I want this dream. I do want this life, but I'm not going to sell my soul in order to get it. And at the end of the day, mm-hmm. I know that I'm not just here for myself. I'm representing my people and entire cosmos behind me. Uh, what, w- when you think about the way she was able to hold court and to sort of uh, not only be center stage, but to be able to share the spotlight with others and her capacity to uplift other black women. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I'll tell you, Cousin Paul's uh, service was, I, I don't know if there's a, if we have a tape of it or not, uh, but it was, it really was 
such a collection of gems in one room because you had Miss Tyson speaking, you had Diane Carroll speaking, you had um, Oscar Lee Brown speaking, I'm sorry, Roscoe Lee Brown speaking, just a lot of really um, prominent people from the black theater world who were still with us at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And the stories that they shared, you know, as I mentioned, she shared, you know, how how much their friendship meant to her. uh, but also just sharing funny stories, you know, it was kind of one of those experiences where everybody is mourning together, but then also, you know, remembering all of these good times and moments that they were working together and uh, just sharing, you know, lived experiences. And it really was like just to be in that room and hear all their different stories and everybody who went up to the podium to speak had something beautiful and touching to share, but then also some kind of a funny story that had all of us rolling. Um, so it was really cool to see, you know, Miss Tyson and her colleagues, you know, to see their crew, you know, all being mm-hmm. kind of in the same space, telling telling different stories and finishing each other's sentences. And it was just it was really a, a beautiful thing to witness. So I'm I'm grateful that I got a chance to kind of be at their at their feet. Absolutely. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. We're speaking with our good sister, Gina Loring. She's helping us break down. Uh, her sentiments and just her appreciation for the late, I don't want to say late, but the the, the regal, the, the, the excellence of our great Miss Tyson, Cicely Tyson, who made her transition just a few days ago, y'all, at the ripe young age of 96. And uh, you're right, Gina. I mean, to be able to sit at the feet of masters is something that I don't want to say is lost in our generation, but uh, singer who you may know, uh, Reese, a good sister of the show also, said on this show mm-hmm. uh it's a quote but it's so true when an elder dies a library burns down mm. it, it, it's deep mm. because with her she takes with her such um such prominence in terms of will something that we, we may never see again you know in terms of the way she did it in the era in which she did it i mean just the discrimination that was rampant in the country at that time i mean we still have it today don't get it twisted but just coming up in the 60s and she's putting out films like The Heart is a Lonely Hunter and Sounder, like you mentioned in 72, River Niger. Uh, I didn't even realize she was in the Concord Airport 79. I remember seeing that years ago. Um, she, she just did so many things. And then you fast forward to that just little brief role that I did see that immediately comes to mind when I think of her was her brief appearance in the movie Idlewild. Did you see Idlewild with uh, Outcast? I did. Mm-hmm. And wow i mean it was just a brief moment but she stole the show i mean just (laughs) the the sincerity and as you said the authenticity of her performance just in that brief moment i mean it's not what you have is what you do with it right yes she worked the heck out of those lines on that script and she probably had what in that whole two-hour movie which i thought was pretty cool in that whole two-hour movie gina she had maybe like five minutes of screen time and she stole the show (laughs) <laughs> I mean, just stole the show. I mean, how many people can do that? And it's just amazing. But I do want, I'm, I am leading this somewhere. Uh, what was <laughs> trending when she transitioned, Gina, was just the relationship that she had with a uh, filmmaker and director and um, movie icon, Tyler Perry. And the fact of how he, uh, in his appreciation and reverence for her and how she carried all of us, you know, during her time, that he was equally as committed to carry her. In, in terms of giving her her flowers, not only that, but you know, paying her what she was truly worth once he found out what she got for her prominent roles, such as uh, Autobiography of uh, Jane Pittman. 
Um, mm-hmm. Your thoughts on that, just the importance of, of honoring our heroes and uh, icons and queens while they're here. Uh, how much of that are we seeing today? Um, how many artists out there, well, not you don't have to give a count, but just do you sense that there is a, a reverence for people appreciating our elders in this industry who have survived and persevered to live as long as Ms. Tyson did? Well, I think the, I think of the, I, I believe the saying is from Ghana, uh, Sankofa, you know, which is ah. to reach, to reach back, to move forward. And I mm-hmm. think that it's really important for us to practice that. You know, I think that in order for us to move forward in a good way, we have to learn about the past. We have to honor um, our elders, our ancestors, and all of the journeys that led to ours. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think it's a beautiful thing for people to be able to, you know, to reach back, to honor, to respect, to give credit where credit is due. Um, And to... And also like the intergenerational wisdom is, is such a such a big part of, of black and indigenous communities. Um, you know, we initially that's who we are. We, we respect our elders. We learn from them. Um, we honor them. And so I think that that's a beautiful illustration to have, you know, present day folk recognizing uh, the people who really created a space uh, for us. Um, nice. I also wanted to mention that Miss Tyson was my soror. She was a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Oh, so, uh, and, and, I, and I mentioned that um, A, to give a shout out, but B, because you know I think that one of the beautiful things about black sororities and fraternities is that it gives us a, a space for that intergenerational connection. Um, you know, we have sorors who are, you know, in their 90s and their 80s and their 70s, all the way down to, you know, the babies who are just now coming out of school at, at you know, 19, 20 years old. Um, so I think I think it's important for us to connect with those those communities, to connect with 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 those who came before us and to learn from them. Um, mm. And DST, of course, is, is a charity based um, organization. And I think that, you know, Ms. Tyson. I unfortunately never had the opportunity to be at an event with her in that capacity, but I know my godmother, who who was also a soror, um, did have an interaction with her. You know where they were together um, at a convention, and just the just the beauty of that, the sisterhood of that, the connection of that, and again that intergenerational wisdom that gets passed down. Mm, so much of it. I mean, just thinking about how she uh, sort of influence other industries besides just acting and stage you know she was uh, famously with Miles Davis many years ago and that scene that I mentioned from Adia where she was with Maya Angelou I mean up to that point I mean I know Maya Angelou had multiple talents but I knew her primarily as a poet and an author and the fact that she's holding court with someone like Miss Tyson um, I mean of course Miss Angelou didn't need that validity from Ms. Tyson or vice versa, but just the fact that there's there's such a reverence for that type of um, eldership, if you will. I mean, you truly have to earn that that level of respect. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you're not going to just be anybody just sitting on court with uh, a Miss Cicely Tyson. Oh man, what a what a loss. Well, um, your career going forward, you know, as a result of this. I mean, we were thinking Gina Loring coming out of 2020 with all the craziness we came out of that. Remember 2016, the year 2016, when we lost Prince, David Bowie, George Michael, Carrie Fisher. I mean, mm-hmm. we lost everybody and their mama in 2016. And the person of the year for Time Magazine that year was, was the Grim Reaper. 
literally, because there was so much tragedy that year. And 2020, I mean, we just came out of that. And we see that, you know, in early 2021, Gina, we're already at 400,000 people that have been lost to this virus and pandemic for what it's worth. You know, I don't want to make this political, but what can you say about your going forward from this point on in uh, early 2021? We're only in January, about to head into February by the time we hear this, February 1st. Um, any takeaways as far as what Ms. Tyson's uh, career and influence and reach creatively uh, and the, the ways in which it'll inspire your future endeavors as an artist? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say um, a few things, you know, when you mention Reese's quote about, you know, when, a, when an elder passes, a library burns, which is mm. a powerful, powerful thing to say. Yes. Um, I would say, you know, it, it really illustrates divine order that Ms. Tyson literally just put out her memoir. Yes. The, the, the book is out. You know, I, I imagine there's probably an audio version as well, I'm guessing. Um, so we have, we have those, you know, those words and those, that information directly from her, uh, that we can study. We have, you know, the, the films and the theatrical work and the articles and the interviews. And so I, I think, um, it's on us to educate ourselves, to take the time to study and to read and to, and to watch those interviews and really continue to learn from her. You know, she left us this legacy. So she's, 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 she may be no longer with us in flesh, but certainly, you know, we can still learn from her um, mm -hmm. in those ways for sure. Absolutely. Um, so there, so there's that, you know, which I think is really important. I would also say that, you know, not to trivialize the folks who have lost people, um, this has absolutely been, uh, you know, a, a tragic year in many ways. Um, but when I think about when lots and lots of people transition at once, you know, and you mentioned 2016, where it was a similar feeling where there was just so many losses mm -hmm. back to back. I think of uh, the Bob Marley song, Exodus, you know, uh -huh. move, movement of job people, you know, yeah. sometimes there is a movement happening and we here in this, in this physical realm, you know, to us, it looks like tragedy. It looks like loss. We don't understand it, but there may be things happening in spiritual realms that we're just not all the way privy to. Um, mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I choose to kind of just let God do what God's going to do and have faith that the angels and ancestors know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that sometimes a shift is necessary. And I think that, uh, a paradigm shift is happening and that's not always comfortable change is not always comfortable but it is part of the cycle of life it is part of the the evolution of humanity the evolution of our of our species the evolution of our planet and so um i choose to kind of just allow it to be um and to trust that there's a divine plan happening um not and again not to trivialize because it has been there have been so many losses that are heartbreaking and those you know those emotions are very real and those losses are very real and those Absolutely. are human beings you know who meant something to other human beings so in no way am i trivializing it mm -hmm. um but from a larger standpoint if we step back and look at the fact that you know we're just this we're this here for this little itty bitty sliver of time on the timeline you yeah. know, and there's a, there are centuries behind us and centuries to come and descendants, mm -hmm. you know, for generations to come. Um, and just to remember uh, that there is there is sometimes other things at play that we're not aware of. That's true. Wow. Well said. Well, I tell you, uh, that's why God only made one, Cicely Tyson. Um, she's an ancestor. And as Gina has said, she was really doing that work already while she was here. And uh, mm -hmm. now, more formally now. Uh, on the other side in that other realm. 
Well, Jim, mm -hmm. I can't thank you enough for being here with us, for sharing all of this, um, this insight, you know, these pearls of wisdom. It's, it's, it's giving us an added perspective. It certainly helps me. You know, I told you off the air, you know, what I've been going through. So that, that's reverent, you know, and I really appreciate you taking the time to help us reflect on that and to acknowledge that because that, that counts too. And it's so important to, to better understand these times. You, you, we can't understand everything, you know, as you said, but at least it, it, it assists in the process of helping us to move forward and move ahead. So that, that's so important too. What's the best way for people to follow you, Gina Loring? Uh, projects coming up, uh, upcoming workshops that you've uh, advertised so well. Uh, what's next for the mm -hmm. wonderful Gina Loring? <laughs> Uh, well, folks can follow me on IG. I'm at Gina Starlight. So at G-I-N-A-S-T-A-R-L-I-G-H-T. Uh, so IG is definitely a good way to, to keep up with me. I also have a website, which is just my first and last name, GinaLoring.com, G-I-N-A-L-O-R-I-N-G.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the Gina Loring. Um, and yes, I do have a premium online course. I teach creative writing and poetry so I can set up I've yes. been doing a lot of one-on-ones, so uh, feel free to reach out to me um, online, whether it's DMing me through IG or you can email me directly through my website, um, and I can set up, you know, one-on-one -on -one creative writing workshops with folks who are, are you know, looking to tweak their writing or get the ball rolling if they've always wanted to write and never really got into it. I can definitely help with that process, mm. um, and yeah, I put out a song recently with Poss from De La Soul. Another uh, one? So I'm excited about that. Gosh, I, I, so, man, I wish I wasn't just now finding out about it. I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't know. <laughs> Another song so, with Boss and De La Soul. Wow. Yeah. So that came out um, maybe about two months ago now um, okay. called I Love You Simple and Plain. So you can listen to that on, on any, any streaming service. It's, it's on all of them. Yes. And, um, and yeah, feel free to keep, keep in touch. Well, that's our show, y'all. Psychotic Bump School is the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome, and you know we're here every Monday evening from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific time. Check back with us. We shall return next week. Also want to thank our very special guest for the evening, Ziamara Yannick. Dr. Flo Jean Colfer, aka Dr. Flo, and of course our good sister Gina Loring. Also want to send a very, very special shout out to Frank Starks, who just celebrated a birthday, y'all. Happy birthday, Mr. Iron Man. He is the Iron Man behind the board, and we're out of here, y'all. Take care. We'll see you next week.